0: All right, our passage this morning is coming from Luke chapter eighteen or Luke eighteen. Sorry. Luke eight. Being Luke eight, verses four through fifteen. If you've been with us for, I don't know, most of the year, it seems like we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Uh we've moved a a few passages ahead, but we're gonna go back and and touch on some on some things that we skipped in the sermon. Uh while you're flipping there to Luke chapter eight. I did want to share with you this week. Kevin asked me to uh, to read this to you. Several of you came out to the YMCA this past week and helped us with our summer camp out there. Um, I think we averaged around a hundred and something kids while we were out there this week and had an opportunity to interact with them and uh, pray for them. Um, you know, through the request forms that they they gave to us, and really the goal this week was just to interact with them and to show them the love of Christ this week. Um, and when Kevin agreed to do this, our prayer was that this would not be a Zach and Kevin going to put this thing on, but that the church would sort of step up and take ownership of it. That this would be an opportunity for you guys to serve. And you blew, you blew us away. Uh, exceeded our expectations. And I was walking through the YMCA this week and, uh, Miss Sonia Jones, uh, the lady who is over that program, she came up to me and she said, Zach, she said, I just want to tell you, she said, you've got some of the sweetest people in your church. My first thought was, who's she talking about? Um, but, but no, she, she, uh, she, she said, you know, you can, you can see the love of Christ in them. She said, not only are they talented, but they had a heart to serve. They were joyful and they loved being with the kids. And, uh, it just, it did my, my heart a lot of good and made me, uh, made me really, really proud of what we got to go out there and do. And they wrote us a letter, uh, and Kevin and I, uh, were really touched by it. So he wanted to, to read this to you as a congregation says the team at Grace Fellowship, we the counselors and campers want to thank you so very much for your willingness to come and share Jesus Christ with us. The sacrifices you and your team made on our behalf will be uh see, sorry, I always have a tough time reading that particular part. Added back to you, uh tenfold by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Your prayers and commitment to serve made a huge difference in the life of our children. Once again, thank you and may God be with you and your ministry. And that's from the staff at the Y. So thank you all uh, for those that were physically there and for those that prayed for our time out there. Uh, it was a job well done. So thank you all. But Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. Today we're coming up on a, a pretty familiar passage. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you've probably heard this parable at some point. It's often called the parable of the sower, but uh, I think probably the more appropriate title for it is the parable of the soils. And so that's what we're looking at today. Luke chapter 8, verses 4-15 through 15 says, And when a great crowd gathered, and people from town after town came out to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, And as he sowed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell in the good soil, and it grew and it yielded one hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. And as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for those in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. This is the Word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands. So let's pray and ask His help in understanding and applying it this morning. Lord Jesus, Your Word's... Come to us and they should cut us, Lord. They should convict us. Lord, my prayer this morning is that by Your Spirit, Lord, You wouldn't allow us to be navel gazers, Lord, but You would allow us to be self-aware. It should help us to examine our hearts, to examine the fruit of our hearts, Lord, and that by this we wouldn't leave feeling condemned, but that we would leave spurred on to holiness. Lord, would You do this work by Your Spirit? It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So active versus passive listening. If you've taken any any communication classes, you're probably familiar with those phrases, active and passive listening. Active listening, just to make the distinction, active listening is where someone says something to you, and you hear it, and you actually take it in, you try and understand it, and it produces a change in behavior, right? That, that's what active listening does. Passive listening, on the other hand, is when you listen, and you may sort of hear what's being said, but you're not really taking it in, you're not really understanding it, and it causes no change in action, right? So that's active and passive listening. If you haven't taken any communication classes, your wife or mother, you've called this selective hearing, Okay, it's a superpower that husbands and kids have, right? Some of us, it takes a little bit longer to develop. Some of us, not so much, right? Selective hearing is where things sort of go in one ear and out the other, right? Kaylee, um, you know, we had this quiet day when we got married. We're going to have a, a joint calendar on, on our on our iPhone, so we'll know what's going on. And we won't overbook something or double book something, and, um when we actually look at the calendar, it works out pretty well, right? And so typically, because I fail to put things in the calendar, we're relying on communication, which means I have to listen. And uh, so she'll tell me, hey, Zach, we have so-and-so going on on Saturday. I'm going to, you know, do a photo shoot in Birmingham or whatever. Well, Saturday rolls around, her alarm goes off. She's getting out of bed, and I'm going, what are you doing? I told you three times this week I have a photo shoot, you know? And it's like... I heard, but I really didn't listen, right? I, it didn't really register selective hearing. Uh, Jesus encountered a pretty similar reaction when He was talking to people, right? Um, throughout His ministry, He attracted great crowds of people that came to listen, but they didn't really hear. They sort of missed the point, right? There was no change in behavior. They heard, but they didn't really listen, And in verse 10, Jesus explains why He continues to teach in parables. And I don't know if you caught that, but in verse 10, He says to you, talking about His disciples, He said, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus knows, this is a crowd of people, who are sort of listening, but not really understanding. And as an act of judgment against their pride and unbelief, Jesus teaches in parables. But, Jesus does say there will be those who, as He says, have ears to hear that would take in His message and it would have an effect on their hearts. It would produce true, saving faith. And so this is our sort of statement for the day, right? The summary of the sermon is that in this parable, right, Jesus is explaining to us what true saving faith is. And this true saving faith receives the gospel, perseveres through trials, and bears fruit. True saving faith receives the gospel, perseveres through trials, and it bears fruit. Alright, so we're going to look at four different types of soil that Jesus gives us. The hard heart, the superficial heart, the preoccupied heart, and the fruitful heart. So first, verses 5 and 12, we're going to look at Jesus' parable and then his explanation of the parable. So verse 5 and verse 12. said, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell among the path, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Then Jesus explains, These along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Alright, so the key to understanding a parable first is we sort of have to understand what is Jesus sort of representing in this metaphor. So let's look, first of all, at what's consistent throughout the parable, the seed. What exactly is the sower and the seed representing? Well, the sower is likely God or someone spreading His message, but the seed is the Word of God, right? The message of Jesus Christ. If you want to get really specific, we would say the Gospel. So the seed represents the Gospel. Now, I want to clarify on the frontings I think this this impacts how we understand the parable when we say gospel I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that word when you hear gospel what comes to mind is is it something that has been done for you or something that you have to participate in the word gospel is a greek word name called euangelion right it means good news This was uh, whenever a nation had gone off and conquered another country, or if it... I'm going to say conquered. um, Whenever they'd gone off and conquered another country, they would send a gospel bearer, a good news bearer, back to their country to deliver good news of victory. These people hadn't participated in the victory. They were merely recipients of its benefit. And so for Jesus to say, I've come to bring you gospel, good news, He's saying... I'm bringing you news of victory. Victory that you don't participate in. It's not something you helped earn, but it's something that you receive the benefits from. It's news from the front line that the victory has been won and we receive the benefits. The gospel is good news, not primarily an invitation for you to pitch in. The gospel is good news. And Jesus says that when this good news, this gospel is proclaimed, it is going to produce one of four responses in your heart. And we need to hear that because you and I, every single person in this room, we fall into one of four camps when we hear the gospel. Every time. We're going to have one of these four responses. And so as you're listening today... As we're hearing the gospel, I I want you to ask yourself, is this me? And then we're going to sort of talk about how to deal with what we find at the end. So, the first soil that we're introduced to is that that fell on the path, right? The seed that fell on the path. Now, we really don't have paths in Clanton, right? Unless you want to call our sidewalks paths, right? But um, I think probably the... The, the easier thing to envision is a dirt road here, right? Uh, soil that's been packed down so tightly that nothing grows on it, right? You don't see turf growing on dirt roads because it's too hard. The roots can't take. And so, get this, because the soil was so hard, the seeds couldn't take root. And because the seeds couldn't take root, Jesus says that birds came and devoured the seed. They came and consumed the seed. So if we're... Asking, what does this say about the human heart? Jesus is talking about the kind of heart that is hard. One that's indifferent, that's calloused, that's desensitized to His message. That's the hard heart. Now, I want to say the hard heart is not the same thing as a doubting heart. Jesus here is not describing someone who is wrestling with doubt here. Right? I think that if we're honest in the Christian life, we're going to go through seasons where our faith is weak. We're going to go through seasons where doubts arise because we're in a faith that doesn't tell us to check our brains at the door. There are going to come times where we wrestle with some doubt. And what's interesting is that every time, at least I could think of, that Jesus encountered someone in the, in the Gospels who was struggling with doubt, his response wasn't anger, it was gracious and tender and patient. Right? You have the story in Mark 9 where Jesus is confronted by a man whose son is dying. He's possessed by a demon and doesn't know what to do. It's making him convulse violently. And he comes to Jesus and says, if you're able, make him clean. And Jesus says, all things are able to those who believe. And the man says, I believe, but will you help my unbelief? And Jesus doesn't turn around and smack him around a bit and say, what are you thinking? Of course I can. Get it together. Jesus turns around and He heals the Son. But I think one of the most interesting passages where Jesus deals with this is in Luke 7. It's one of the passages we skipped over, but it's last chapter back. John the Baptist, all right, a cousin of Jesus, one that was sent to prepare the way. And John, as, he, as he's in the wilderness baptizing people for the Messiah, he sends two men to Jesus to ask Jesus, Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? John is having a moment of weak faith. A moment of doubt. And Jesus' response to him, he says, Go back and tell John this. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, go back and tell John, everything the Old Testament said the Messiah would do, you see me do it. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't think, man, this is a really defective prophet we have on our hands here. In fact, in the same passage, Jesus goes on to call John the greatest prophet ever born. Jesus is always tender with those who doubt. doesn't mean that we stay in a season of doubt. But seasons of doubt are healthy. They're expected. And the reason why is that if you have genuine faith, seasons of doubt actually will make a true follower lean in more. Doubts don't make you fall away, they make you lean in more. That's normal, it's expected. So this isn't what Jesus is talking about with the hard heart. If not, what is He talking about? He's talking about someone who's indifferent or hostile to the gospel. Their heart of heart. The gospel can't take root. And then Jesus introduces another character into this parable, right? He says that Satan comes along and devours the gospel seed. Now maybe at first glance... Right? We ought to see two things. Number one, anytime the gospel message is proclaimed, there is spiritual warfare that accompanies it. The enemy is hostile to the work of God and the advancement of His kingdom. But, we don't need to read this passage in a way that lets us think that Satan is somehow frustrating the work of God. Or that God's will would have been accomplished, but then Satan got in the way again. That's not what Jesus is saying. We need to be reminded that the only reason that the birds or Satan could come and devour the gospel message is because the heart was already hard. Right? If it had been good soil, the seeds would have taken. They would have had a fighting chance. But these seeds landed on a hard heart and it was a prime opportunity for our adversary. But we do not need to give Satan more power than he actually has. Satan is not the reason that any single person will ever go to hell. The only thing that can send us to hell is our own hardness of heart and unbelief. We need to be far more worried about that than we do Satan. He is very much on a leash. But Jesus moves on to other two other types of soil that I think are less obvious, but equally as condemning as the hard heart. Verses 6 and 13, I'll read those. It says, "...and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture." And these on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. So here Jesus evokes the imagery of someone trying to farm on soil that had rocks just below the surface. That's a common problem in this region, right? That you had a really thin layer of soil with tons of rocks underneath. And so you might be able to throw seed out, and it might sprout for a moment... But the roots couldn't go very deep, and so what would happen as the sun came up is that they were ultimately scorched, and then they withered and blew away like they never existed. Jesus says there is a type of heart that is symbolized by this. And this is what we'll call the superficial heart. And you could put the shallow heart if you want to. This heart looks outwardly Impressive. At least for a time, right? That's what superficial means, right? Looks good on the outside, but there's no real substance or life inside. It's deceiving. Um, I, so in high school, uh, around like age 17, I went through a run of about three trucks trying to find the one that would finally make me cool and, you know, fit in all that good stuff. And so the second installment in this series of trying to gain other people's approval, uh, was, A white GMC Sierra, 1500, and it was four-wheel drive. Like, those of you that know me now and didn't know me in high school, believe it or not, there was a time where I wanted a truck with loud pipes, mud tires, lift kit, subwoofer, all that. All right. Um, And so I find this truck. I couldn't believe it, man. I mean, leather package, Bose sound system, all this, four-wheel drive. And they wanted... Like $11,000 for it. I had like 70,000 miles. Like, this is too good to be true. And as with most things, things that are too good to be true or at least appear that way, they are, right? So I go and buy it. And I get home and realize, huh, four-wheel drive doesn't work. These seats feel kind of funny. And I start looking around and realize they're different than the back seats. These are plastic. The ones in the back are leather. Um... I go to look at the tires and I find out the back right tire, like the rim, is cracked completely in half. So that would have been a good time, right? Um, You start looking on the body of the truck and there were places that were patched with an off-white paint. So when the sun hit it just right like a white and tan Dalmatian truck out there in the driveway, It, it was a deceiving truck. Superficially, it was a great deal, right? It was a nice looking truck. They had improved it cosmetically. But they had not actually fixed any of the real issues. It was deceiving. And Jesus says, this is a lot like one type of response we can have to the gospel, where it's superficial, it's shallow. Jesus says this heart is especially deceiving because it responds positively to the gospel initially. He says they receive it with great joy. But ultimately, however, this person gets tested by temptation or trial. And they fall away is the word that Jesus uses there. That word for fall away is where we get our word apostasy. Right? To leave, depart the faith. Jesus here is giving us an explanation of the people that we have seen that tragically embrace the gospel with a great zeal, a great excitement. And then they just inexplicably fall away and leave the people around them dumbfounded. If you're looking on the internet this week, Joshua Harris, guy who wrote a lot of Christian books, right? Divorced his wife this week and walked away from the Christian faith after pastoring a Reformed church for a long time, right? And he's just walked away from the faith. John makes it clear in 1 John that there are those who will go out from us, they will depart, they will apostatize, not because they lost their faith, but because they never had it to begin with. Now, how does this happen exactly? I mean, you know, there is some signs of life. What is it talking about? What is that faith? Why is it defective like this? What do these rocks symbolize? I think it symbolizes this, that there is a type of faith, a type of response to the gospel that is either just based purely on emotion, or is an intellectual assent to truth, but those people never actually treasure and know Christ. There's an emotional response, or maybe a love for biblical truth and theology, but they never experience a deep union with Christ Himself. And when our faith is purely emotional or purely intellectual, that kind of faith will not make it when we are tempted or put through the ringer. That kind of faith will not make it under duress. And that faith, that response, will wither and will disappear. No one loses their salvation, but there will be people who walk away as proof that they were never a part of the church. Next. Next type of soil. is the preoccupied heart. Verses 7 and 14. It says, And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And these that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. So here... Jesus describes a patch of briars, right? Some of your translations might say weeds. But it's a nuisance, right? They grow really fast, and they choke out life around it. If you walk down like the Ollie Avenue Park, right, there's lots of shrubbery that I'm sure at one point in time used to be really pretty, but now thorns have taken over, right, and it won't grow, it won't mature, it's not bearing any fruit, it's not attractive. Jesus says this is a type of heart. See this this seed that was scattered among the thorns, the seed was having to compete for soil space and nutrients with the thorns, and it lost. All right. Whenever you apply this to the heart, there is a type of response to the gospel, and I think it's especially something we need to be aware of in the US because we have so much. There's a type of response to the gospel that is entangled with cares for things of the world. Not all of them are inherently evil, but there's a response that sort of wants to hold a love for Christ in one hand and a love for the world in the other. And it just won't work. Jesus says that over time, these things will slowly choke out our love for Him. And there's three different... Weeds will call it that he describes here. The first thing he says was he says it's those who are choked by the cares of this world. What do we mean by cares? Uh and a guy who wrote a commentary on this he described this as worries and anxieties, corrosive cares that eat away the soul little by little. So the first thing is is worry, right? Anxiety, worry enlarges our problems, right? Like it blows our problems out of proportion. And worry also shrinks God down to an unrecognizable size where His hands are tied and He really can't do anything. Worry completely distorts our vision. Louis Giglio crystallized that idea and he said this, worry and worship cannot exist in the same space. One will always displace the other. Choose worship. Right? Worry and worship cannot coexist. We must choose one. Will we be a people who worship despite our worry? Or people who try and worry over worshiping. The cares of this world, even genuine concerns, if they are placed in priority over Christ and worshiping him, they will choke out our ability to see and to savor Jesus. But the second thing he says is not just cares, but riches. When we say riches, again, I think sometimes, right, we sort of think we're exempt from this if we don't have a lot of money. Um, This doesn't speak to just the possession of wealth. It can also be the pursuit of wealth. I would dare say every person in this room has an like a number in their head, right? If I had this much money in the bank account, then I could stop worrying. If I could pay off X amount of debt by this time, then I'd be good. What we do is we sort of look for our finances to be our refuge. And we can very easily spend a life pursuing riches. And what Jesus says is that when we do this, we are dividing our heart. We're attempting to serve two masters. And he says so clearly in Matthew 6:24, that a heart simply cannot serve two masters. We can't have a divided heart looking to serve wealth and riches. God alone must be our refuge, not some ideal financial state. And the third weed: pleasures. Now there are those pleasures that I feel like are fairly obvious, right? These are the inherently sinful pleasures. And we can say, you know, sexual vice, drunkenness, addiction, etc. Like we, we would say those things are inherently sinful no matter how much of it or in what form those things are inherently sinful. That's a type of weed that can grow in our life. But then there's also those that are sinful in overindulgence. Food, alcohol, sports, hobbies, Entertainment, social media, and you can throw your work in there, right? The list just sort of goes on and on and on of things that if we're not careful will rob us of our ability to enjoy Christ. C.S. Lewis said that we are a people far too easily pleased. We settle for lesser pleasures and Jesus addresses that head on because He is the only one that can satisfy our hearts. He is the only one that can give true security. Wealth can't do that. He is the only one that can give peace. No amount of circumstances and things going the right way can ever completely rid us of anxiety. Only He can do that. Jesus wants to come along and weed these things out of our heart because He's the only one that can satisfy. But it's interesting that He uses this picture of weeds and thorns because what ultimately happens is that it's almost undetectable, isn't it? The things that grow in our hearts. If you look at one of those bushes down at Ollie Avenue Park, the thorns didn't appear overnight. It started out as one little bitty briar growing somewhere around the base of the shrub. And before you know it right, it's taken the bush over. In the same way, you and I can give ourselves over to pleasure and riches and anxieties in small incremental degrees. And we wake up and we realize that we have no capacity to see and to enjoy Jesus. These things are subtle, but they're deadly. And the reason this is so serious is because Jesus says that people with these kind of weeds entangling their heart, their fruit can't mature. See, and the problem there is that the Bible doesn't have a category for a fruitless Christian. There's no category for that. Someone who says, I follow Jesus, but I bear no fruit. I I look nothing like Him. The Bible doesn't have a category for that. We so often reduce salvation down to a simple, am I in or am I not? And the Bible's asking the question, are you fruitful? Do you look like Jesus? Are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? See, Jesus has to be more than a useful addition to our lives. He must become the center of our lives, the object of our affection. And when He is... Our hearts will truly be at peace. Our hearts will be content. And get this, our hearts will be satisfied. And it will rob pleasure of its power. Jesus must become the center of our affections. The author of Hebrews gives us several warnings. And if I can just pile them all together, it's this. Let us lay aside every weight, those that are inherently evil and those which are not, the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. But not all seed have been sown in vain. So lastly, and we'll, we'll make this one quick, the fruitful heart. The fruitful heart. Verses 8 and 15. Jesus says, And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As for these in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So finally, we get to the last type of soil. And this is the good soil. Jesus says that it's those who hear the good news, hold it fast, and ultimately will bear fruit. And Jesus gives... Three characteristics, right? He goes into detail a little bit. He says, first, unlike the hard heart, the good soil, right? The good heart, the fruitful heart, will actually receive the gospel. Not just listen to it passively, but actively hear it. Unlike the rocky soil, true faith will not be scorched under times of duress, under temptation and trial. True faith will endure. It's one of the basic tenets of Reformed theology. If you're wondering, what are we about as a Presbyterian church? I like you guys, but I don't know really what that means. One of the things it means that we hold very seriously here is that those with a genuine faith, God will keep. No one walks away. No one falls away. Jesus holds us and will not let us go. True faith perseveres. It endures. And that's by God's grace, not by human effort. Third, unlike the soil with the weeds or the thorns, the good soil will allow the seed to grow unimpeded, and it will mature and bear fruit. A person with genuine faith will, by the power of the Spirit, not ultimately succumb to entangling sins. It will not become their way of life, They will not get comfortable with it. They will not make peace with it. They will not stop fighting their sin. And as a result, this person will bear fruit, marked by obedience, displaying the fruit of the Spirit, and they will look more and more like Jesus. As Paul says, even as their bodies waste away, their spirit will be renewed day by day as it is being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. True faith will bear fruit. And this right here, this is the goal of true Christianity, that weak, defective sinners like me and you would be redeemed by God's grace and ultimately we would be conformed to His image. Not just that we would get our fire insurance and move on and proceed to look just like the rest of the world, but that we would bear fruit, that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. So in conclusion, let's ask this question. What if you're hearing those different soils and you say, man, my life shows signs of that soil and it's not number four? Right? Like maybe, maybe for you there is signs of life and you think, man, I think I'm good soil, but I don't know, I kind of like that, that weedy soil there too or I kind of like that rocky soil at times as well. What if we see other types of soil present in our hearts? Number one, I'd say this. If you don't hear the parables of Jesus, specifically this parable, and feel a twinge of conviction at the bare minimum, then you ought to be worried and you ought to talk to somebody. This was canonized for the church. right? God's Word was given to God's people. And so it has to be Beneficial to more than just lost people. Although it is, right? It has to be beneficial for us too. It has to serve for our sanctification. And so as a general rule of thumb, I would say this. If you feel conviction from this parable, it is proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart tilling up the soil of your heart, weeding out the things that would rob you of your affection and your capacity to enjoy and love Jesus. Conviction is a sign of life. People dead in sin don't feel conviction. It's proof that His Spirit's at work within us. And if you feel that conviction, you will know, how do I get conformed to the image of Jesus? Take advantage of the means of grace. Grace. Be a student of His Word. Dedicate yourself to prayer and belong to the church. And if you'll be faithful to do those things, I think you'll be amazed at what God's Spirit produces in you over time. The means of grace are our means of growth. And then, lastly, if you know that you've never received the good news of the Gospel, if you've never truly come to know and love Jesus, you don't see any fruit, then come to Jesus this morning As the hymn says, he stands ready to save you, full of pity, joined with power. As Jesus said to the crowd, he who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is sharp as a double-edged sword because our hearts are often hard. Our hearts are often hard and they're cold. Father, and we need You in Your love and in Your mercy to come and remove the calluses, to pull the weeds out of our heart, to till up the unbelief that's lying just under the surface. Lord Jesus, will You convict us deeply and will You comfort us with Your Gospel that You came to save people who are broken, people who are inconsistent And Lord, that Your mercy, Your grace, is indeed enough to transform us into Your image. Lord, we are dependent on You to do just that because we have no power to do it in and of ourselves. Lord, will You help us? Will You change us? Will You help us to love and treasure You above all things? Lord, it's in Your name we pray. Amen.